hidden identities and gender wars. Race and belonging, Shakespeare's Othello holds out a startling mirror to the turbulent times we live in now. Pinned against a backdrop of rising populism, xenophobia and deepening tensions, we explore how a 400-year-old play casts a spotlight on contemporary Britain. Hello, I'm Ramona Ali and welcome to The Othello Project, a podcast series which accompanies English touring theatre's groundbreaking production of Shakespeare's Othello. In this, the third in our series, our special reporter, Aina Jehan, explores the theme of masculinity and patriarchy as exemplified by Othello's Venice. Is there a similar toxic masculinity at play in Britain today? Is there a need for young female activists to help set things right? And we hear the reflections of British Somali poet and teacher Muhammad Muhammad as he deconstructs and reconstructs the theme of male power and privilege. Welcome to episode three, Patriarchy and its Discontents. But first of all, let's hear from our reporter, Aina J. Khan. So I'm sat in the theatre, the Othello production has just concluded, and I'm sat with Iram and Mamuna, who have come all the way from Bradford to watch the play today. Tell me more about yourselves. So what actually brought you here today? Um, my name is Mamuna, and I was just kindly given the offer to come and watch the play. I studied the play as an A-level student, and to be able to be given the opportunity to actually watch it and see how everything unfolds is really amazing because so many themes that occur in the play seeing them actually happen made me relate to what's happening in current society. My name's Iram and um, I also had been given the opportunity to come watch the play and uh, I also study English literature as an A-level. So outside of school, outside of A-levels, what do you girls get up to? Um, so we run a collective safe space in the centre of Bradford called Speakers Corner Collective. It's a space that unites young women's voice um, not in a political atmosphere, but discussing political issues that affect them in their daily lives. So a lot of the themes in this play were subordination of women and toxic masculinity and, you know, women being silenced and actually seeing those proxemics is something that we really discuss at Speaker's Corner and how we feel as young women growing up in a very Western society, how we interpret our religion and our identity throughout that. As young Muslim women, we have uh, the power to plan events and also plan events that get everyone involved, get the youth involved. And it's really amazing to have a platform where we can express ourselves, express our views. So this play was written over 400 years ago. And I wonder, as two young women who are really heavily involved within activism, do you think that a play that was written centuries ago still has that appeal to you? There are many themes that correspond to our society right now. For example, um, the theme of patriarchy, the fact that Othello has this sense of superiority above Desdemona and the fact that her love cannot be expressed clearly and that kind of theme is now relevant in society because we see that across media, social media, the fact that the, the men or the boys have to kind of approach the girls in relationships first instead of it being the other way around. I think in our current society, I think there is a really, really toxic kind of atmosphere right now, especially politically, when you've got figures like Donald Trump who deny the Me Too campaign and actually deny women's voice. And as a woman about to, you know, maybe start her degree next year, go into the world of work, it really angers me that I'm going to have to face some of these issues because I think 
um, toxic masculinity or something. But it's because of this whole honour and even the killing of Desdemona and Othello killing himself, it's still honour at the end of the day. Yeah, it's crazy because it's as if Shakespeare is some kind of, I don't know, future teller or I don't, oh, he's some kind of magician because every single theme that's represented in Shakespeare's Othello is actually really relevant right now. Um, Othello committed suicide and killed himself because... I feel personally his love and his passion was too much for him to handle and the fact that he he had so much guilt inside of him because he killed his wife and after realising that his wife was actually innocent, he, he couldn't take it anymore and his suicide is actually relevant to today's society because we do see men committing suicide a lot more because... They're told that their feelings shouldn't be heard and that they can't present. If a man cries, it's seen as, what? Wow, why is he crying for? He's so, he's so pathetic, he's so sad, like, why is he crying? But a woman expressing her feelings is normal. And I think that's really it's saddening because the fact that men are having to take their lives just for them to, to say, actually, I've got a voice. I put the question to Othello director Richard Twyman of why toxic masculinity features so prominently in this production. When I was looking at the play, I made this really difficult decision because I, I really wanted that the Venice um, that Othello is living in and the Venice that um, Othello suffers the profound racism and prejudice that he does, that he then internalises and leads to what he does, is an entirely masculine world. That those are the, those are those are the forces of the patriarchy, and it felt really significant to me that that was the case. And actually, what's really interesting is in the second half of the play, there's very little of the same racism that Othello has verbally suffered in the first half. Actually, it's almost like Othello's become Venetian. He's become part of that patriarchy. He's almost become accepted. And so, the second half of the play for me is all about toxic masculinity is all about misogyny so it felt the best way of doing that was to show how these three women are, are trying to live in this world where all those forces are existing and what it did for me is it meant something like the willow scene became this oasis all of the male characters are on stage um, with desdemona and amelia sat amongst them and then within two lines of the scene, they all get up and walk off. And Desmona and Amelia are left. And it's like, it's the first time in the play, I think, you notice how hard it feels being amongst all those men for those for those two women. And it's like a kind of, uh, they have a freedom, they have a space in which they can express themselves. My mother had a maid who's called Barbary, and she was in love, and he she loved proved mad and did forsake her. She had a song of Willow. An odd thing it was, but it expressed her fortune and she died singing it. Well, I know she's often thought of as Iago's long-suffering wife. I like to think of her as a strong female force in the play. She's all sorts of things, but she's very loyal and loving and caring, and she has suffered. That's Kelly Price, who plays the role of Amelia. So there's a monologue at the end of the Willow scene where uh, Amelia is talking to Desdemona to try to educate her on marriage, and she says, um, but I do think it's their husband's fault if wives do fall. What is it that they do when they changes for others is it sport i think it is and doth affection breed it i think it doth 
Is frailty that thus earth's? It is so too. And have not we affections, desires for sport and frailty as men have? Then let them use us well. Else let them know the ills we do, their ills instruct us so. And um, she just wants to try to help Desdemona to not go down the same route as she has done and she's experienced that. So I don't think Amelia's going out there to try to change the world, but I think she's, she's a real suffragette kind of way. She's lived it. So she's just speaking very simply, very truthfully, very honestly, of this is what my life experience is so far and hopefully try to help her. And then obviously when we get to the end, the, the, the tricky thing is, is she is silenced slightly by Iago. And then obviously at the end she's able to, she's nothing to live for anymore, nothing to lose because she realises her husband, you know, who she's been fighting for in this marriage, it's, it's horrendous what he's been doing. And my husband, my husband, my husband, she keeps repeating and it's like a kick in the stomach, you know. And, and I think from that moment on it's just, well, all she can do is tell the truth and put things straight and fight for her own honour and fight to be heard. And yet I'll speak, she says, and she really lets all that rage out. In a, in a strange calm as well. So this calm comes over her and then she's like, right, and just has to speak up for, for women and for herself and for her friend and for love. It's cheesy, but it's true. <laughs> so do you think in some ways uh, what happens to Desdemona is an honour killing? Yeah, I think Shakespeare conveys that in a perfect manner when he shows that, you know, Desdemona is killed because of Othello's fears of being cuckolded. And I think even in a modern society, a woman must be, you know, really aware of every single action that she does in and out of marriage, and especially in culture. A male can get away with cheating. You know, that isn't that isn't something that can even be argued. In a, in a very cultured society, a man can get away with it. But if a woman even dares to look at another man or mention another man, she is utterly shamed and shunned for it. And I think even though it's in human nature, a young, really, really religious woman, even if she fancies someone, even though it's in her human nature, she will still be shunned for it and it will be seen as something inhumane. And to dehumanise a young person from, from doing something that's in their human nature in a play... And to see it in real life, it's really something that needs to change. There was one scene in particular that I found particularly hilarious and also disturbing at the same time. It depicted three young soldiers after their victory celebrating with booze, prosthetic breasts and a whole lot of sexual innuendo. Come on, big boy! Let's go! James Ellis, who plays the Duke of Venice, had something really interesting to say about this scene. Some, some people in the audience in the post-show discussions have mentioned that they feel uncomfortable with that and yet not seemingly uncomfortable with the fact that at the very end of the play, all the men are still standing on the stage in various states of distress, apart from one, obviously, and there are two dead women on the stage. So it's just an interesting observation on what some people find morally objectionable. I think it's something that we need to overcome, whether it's with the corruption we face in society, in current society, a strong symbol symbolism of 
women's voices being oppressed and how by the end it's all males that are alive but women's voices still being sh- like shunned and silenced. Do you think Shakespeare himself was a feminist? In some ways, yes, but in some ways, not. In some ways, he was a feminist because the fact that he had female characters in the actual play itself shows the rise of feminism. I think in several aspects, Shakespeare was a rebel for his time. I think his kind of defiance, not just of kind of oppressing women and a women's voice actually conveying the fact that women were present in society you know crediting them and showing that they do have a voice um I think in a Jacobean society what makes it more powerful now is the females wouldn't have had a part so the way the emotions are conveyed to us today as an audience are completely different because females are playing the part and females connecting on stage really the symbolism of that powerful movement of women rising now and Within the play, there's several proxemics of Desdemona, you know, at the start, she stands up in an all-male Senate, the only female, but in a Jacobean society, it still would have been a male actor playing a woman in the Senate and it wouldn't have been as powerful. It's this and seeing it in real life that really inspires us and where we can relate to issues and as young women want to think, how can we change and pave the way for other young women? Do you think that sisterhood that you saw between Amelia and Desdemona, that sisterhood that you see now manifests itself within Speaker's Corner? Yes, definitely, because there we have kind of moved as a society. There have been changes. Women are becoming more independent. I think projecting the voices of women, that's really important because at Speaker's, we are a collective, we are a sisterhood, and it's a safe space for everyone to come and express their opinions. And... Just to have that in your life, for example, for me, to have that, that kind of empowers you as a person and it definitely has empowered me. I feel like we are sometimes made to feel worthless because we don't have the right to vote or because we're made to feel like we shouldn't have a political voice because we're too young. And I think that we're a really, really intelligent generation that has such a strong political voice. Young people will, you know, come out of this and they will be strong. Well, I'm now sat with Aina J. Khan, and wow, Aina, those young women from Speaker's Corner were very impressive, uh, very powerful voices in there. Yeah, I mean, with women like that, the, the helm of the world, I, I we imagine have more the hope. patriarchy will be dismantled very soon. Yeah, I found it really, really uh, interesting to hear their views about toxic masculinity and how they as young women view the world and see that there are real inequalities and that there is injustice there. I just want to know if their experiences have reflected your own in any way. Did you resonate with what they were saying? Oh, for sure. I I think um, as a woman who happens to be from a Pakistani background, a woman who happens to be Muslim, no less, us women have almost become a vehicle for um, piety, um, where any kind of, you know, we're, we're always expected to be uh, a certain way. And when I say be a certain way, I mean we're supposed to be good. We're supposed to be towing the line. We're supposed to be... And th- this is, um, you know, this is something that is a cross-cultural issue as well. And no matter what culture you look at, you will find that women always have these expectations projected onto them. And the moment you step out of that line then, you know, you're considered to be um, uh, CD. And so, yeah, sadly, I have to say I, I have... From a very young age, been very aware of the fact that because I am, uh, because I was a girl, um, that things, the stacks, the odds were stacked against me. So for myself, when I was growing up, I did have this deep sense of 
of feminism, really. And that was something that was instilled from my parents, from my father, who was always for women's rights. But I know that that wasn't always the typical kind of Asian family uh, environment that, you know, I've heard from other young people who've said, you know, I wasn't allowed to go to university, for example. But my, my parents encouraged me to be independent, to have an education, to go to university. And also just regarding feminism, are Muslim women now reclaiming their divine rights? I had a really interesting discussion with my friend um, and I remember saying to Yasmin, you know, I feel like as Muslims, we have regressed as a community when it comes to our rights, whether we, you know, the rights that are given to women. And she kind of just burst out of nowhere. Aina, I think Prophet Muhammad was a feminist. And I looked at her and I was like, you know what? You're bloody right. I think you're absolutely right. The way I see it, Islam gave rights to women in a period of time where we're talking about medieval Arabia. It didn't just give rights to women. It gave so many other things as well. But for me, obviously, as a woman, I look back to that moment and think, OK, that's where it all started. And so in going back to that moment, I absolutely think that, yes, Muslim women are reclaiming this idea of an Islamic feminism because it was embedded in our faith from its very inception. But I think it was the Egyptian feminist um, Nawal al-Sadawi who said that, you know, feminism did not just originate in America. It's originated in all corners of the earth uh, amongst women from, you know, from every corner of the earth. And, and, and that really resonates with me and absolutely applies to, to Muslim women as well. Another really intriguing thing that the Young Women of Speakers Corner mentioned was that men can also be victims of toxic masculinity. And we see that with Othello in the play. So how do we see that that unravelling of Othello? How does he deal with that? How do we witness his conflict? He almost has this kind of internal war with himself where, you know, Desdemona becomes... He's not. She's not only the love of his life. She also becomes this kind of linkage with Venetian society as well. That that should have allowed him to really become accepted. And yet, the moment when Iago whispers into his ear that, well, hmm, she might be cheating on you, mate. Um, it's more of a mental unraveling for me that I see when it comes to Othello. And and you know what? Isn't it weird? I think that is kind of almost a reflection of the pressures that we place on men in society today as well in terms of they're unable to articulate their emotions because, don't you know, you're a man. Suck it in, right? And men, are often, they're suppressing their emotions and the, the only one that really comes out is anger and that becomes associated with masculinity. And that's a really dangerous association. And seeing Othello, you know, kind of descend, it's a descent of man and Iago whispering like a devil into his ears and bringing out the worst traits of his nature the worst of humanity. Iago's an embodiment, I would say, of societal pressures that are really, you know, these mammoth expectations that are placed on men. He's also an embodiment of what I think is far right, the rise of the far right as well. All these insecurities, all these kind of... Which are angry. A storm. He's, he's an embodiment <laughs> of multiple storms and he projects that onto Othello and that's it, corrupts this 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 man. And But also Iago is full of insecurities as well. So it's just insecurities feeding off insecurities and then destroying so each other. So I guess you can sympathise with him as well. I know, I'm, yeah, that's true actually. I'm portraying him as some kind of like devil... But yeah, you can absolutely sympathise with him because he is also a victim of this kind of toxic masculinity, the idea that, you know, you have to be a powerful man. I think Othello is at his most masculine when he is affectionate to his wife, he's loving to his wife, he's secure, and that's at the beginning of the play. And then he becomes the antithesis of masculinity at the end. 
Like in every episode, we'll be hearing from an important British Muslim voice. This time, we turn to poet and teacher Muhammad Muhammad. In my day-to-day, I operate in spaces which present masculinity in different ways. As a poet, being vulnerable, inviting, delicate and socially conscious is accepted. But showing that in my full-time work as a sports professional would get me called soft. Or my nickname as a teenager, sweet boy. So I grew up asking the question, what is masculinity? A lot of words my father used to discuss what it means to be a man would be centred around power, strength and leadership. He'd say, you must be strong Mohammed," or you must have a good job. I don't see a problem with these statements, but growing up outside of my family space, I was presented with something different. When I was a young football enthusiast, I remember feeling very uncomfortable with what was said in the changing rooms, or what the Americans call locker room talk. We absolutely raped that team, a teammate shouted, following a victory with a massive goal margin. So beating the opposition with skills, tricks and goals were termed as being raped. Is this everyday masculinity? No, it's what I now understand to be a manifestation of toxic masculinity. It creates an environment which endangers society, especially women. In the UK, One in four women experience domestic violence in their lifetime and in England and Wales today, two women a week are murdered by their current or former partners. When delving into the story of Othello, we see a character who is not afraid to be emotional and showcase his feelings. How does a man who is perceived to demonstrate emotional intelligence at the beginning of the play become a murderer? We see a similarity in contemporary Britain. When a woman is murdered by their partner, Neighbours claim they never saw the male as that kind of person. What made Iago such a trustworthy individual for Othello to believe him? Without a doubt. In a patriarchal society, it's sadly easy to cast suspicion on a woman's word, especially against the word of a man. Misogyny is a learned behaviour, shaped by our cultural understanding of the position of women in society. So why do men see the term toxic masculinity as an attack on just being a man? The immediate answer? It isn't. The common saying, these are our sisters, mothers, aunties, is not a statement we need. It upholds patriarchal norms and centres women as only of significance when in relation to another man. When we allow the language of violence against women to be normalised as an expression of victory, as it was in that football changing room when I was growing up, This is when we promote toxic masculinity. For me, Shakespeare was way ahead of his time. The fact that 400 years on, his play can still resonate when discussing real-life consequences of toxic masculinity, well, it's not reassuring. Even while Desdemona pleads her innocence, Othello's ruthless toxic behaviour prevents his humanity towards his wife. Desdemona said, But while I say one prayer... Othello responds, it is too late. You've been listening to The Othello Project, an initiative by English Touring Theatre which is generously supported by Amul, a programme of the Said Foundation. My thanks to the voices in this episode, to the thought-provoking reflections by Muhammad Muhammad, and of course to our excellent reporter, Aina J Khan. 
And special thanks to the executive producer and creative advisor of The Othello Project, Abdurrahman Malik. Tune in next time to hear episode four, which probes the pitfalls and the privilege of class and power. As always, this and previous episodes of the Othello Project podcast, including our first series, is available at soundcloud.com forward slash English Touring Theatre and available on iTunes. This series is produced by Tom Glasser.